Thomas Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. The stock market takes off after the federal budget pumps billions into the economy. Today, Roger Montgomery and I discuss where the risks lie and what you should buy. Great to have your company for another episode of The Money Minutes, and today it's all about the reaction of business and investors to the budget that's promising net debt to peak near $1 trillion, in gross terms around $1.7 trillion. So that means more than $500 billion is being pumped into our economy. Now, as I've said before, I think this recession, caused by a virus and not a financial shock, is going the way of most other economic downturns. The government and central bank have responded to cushion the blow, and that creates perhaps even a short-term boom. But the real risk lies when they have to reverse these positions, perhaps in three or four years' time. Because right now, when it comes to economic stimulus, the furnace is wide open. All the sales are up. It's full throttle. Pick whichever analogy you like. But the government and Reserve Bank have decided to throw everything at this economy. And that's fine, if you can afford it. And Australia can afford it right now though do expect the nation's credit rating to be cut sometime in the near future. In the next day or so, I'll speak with S&P Global Rating, Standard & Poor's, that does decide Australia's credit rating. We'll talk not only about that sovereign debt, the government's credit rating, but also what that means for our banks. Now, the Treasurer continues to say that our national debt is much lower than many of the other major OECD countries. But do remember, this is not a competition about who's worse. It's about the fact that the economic stimulus measures are racking up debt by the billions, which government can right now afford because of record low interest rates. But because of those record low interest rates, with little or no inflation in Australia, the confidence for business to invest is severely diminished because the return on their capital employed is so low. So why would you take a risk with your capital if the return is going to be so low? Now sure, as many homeowners will be tempted, you can borrow as much as you like to magnify your returns. But that also magnifies the risk if there's another economic shock. Now the same argument is true for business, but it's compounded when you consider our falling population rate here in Australia because of a lack of migration and the ongoing high cost for both energy and wages, which really we are the world's leaders at some of the highest costs for energy and for wages. Now, it's this perception amongst business people that they don't want to take a risk, they don't want to get it wrong, that Josh Frydenberg has to convince business there is a return out there, if they're prepared to invest. With the budget still fresh in our minds, let's now go to a man that we always turn to when it comes to the stock market. That is Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management, of course, one of the key value investors in this country. Um, And Roger, many thanks for your time. As always, the one thing that you can see in response to the budget has been an increase in share prices. Broadly, Mm -hmm. that's because of the billions upon billions of dollars that the government is spending and putting into the economy, the punt, as I've described it, uh, to effectively try and, if you like, stopgap the real fall in the economy because of coronavirus. It's stepped in, it's printing the money, and as a result, the stock market seems a happier place for the time being. Yeah, look, if, if you know any measures where you socialise losses and privatise profits, that's got to be a good thing. So 
Uh, and, and quite frankly, once JobKeeper was first announced earlier this year, you knew that the numbers were going to be largely academic. The government's been really handed a mandate basically to rescue the economy. And the fact that the, the lower house has already given its uh, in-principle support for this particular budget means that Labor doesn't want to be labelled uh, as a party that, you know, stymies the economy. Um, and so no party really wants to be in charge or at the reins or responsible for any kind of recession uh, any worse than we have to have. Uh, and we are in a recession, of course, and that's why these kinds of spending, these kinds of numbers are actually relevant uh, or um, or acceptable. So I think they're largely academic. It really didn't matter how much was being was being proposed to be spent uh, in this particular budget. What's interesting is that gross debt's going to hit $1.7 trillion, which, of course, is an Australian all-time record. And at some point in the future, that has to be paid back. And it's true for all countries, not just for Australia as well. So if we fast forward into the future, it's going to have implications for currencies because countries that are seen to be managing the debt better or paying it down quicker, um, their currencies will be relatively stronger. Uh, and so that will be important. It will be important that our currency is an uncompetitively strong, but at the same time, we don't want it to be unduly weak. Um, so at some point, inflation is going to make a return and the RBA will deliberately sit behind the curve and they won't raise rates very quickly. They'll allow inflation to edge up. And the reason for that, of course, is that's one way that it's cheaper for government debt to be paid back because you're paying it back in future dollars, but the debt, the amount of the debt is marked in past dollars, which obviously inflated dollars are more valuable. Um, we also know that while there's tax cuts now, uh, in the future, we can see a world where there's probably going to have to be, when the economy is much stronger and on, on, on more solid ground, uh, there's probably going to be a world where tax hikes uh, will will come back. Uh, and that's another way that can the debt can be paid down a bit faster. And then, of course, the third way, the third method for repayment, which is the one that the government and most most governments and central banks around the world have adopted right now is what we call financial repression in financial markets. Um, and basically, financial repression is where you repress interest rates or you lo keep interest rates really low. And what that does is, is it represses income for the private sector. So if you've got savings, you're earning nothing. But it means that debt, or government debt uh, and the interest rate on that government debt uh, is is cheaper and therefore easier to pay back. And that's what financial repression is. And, and that's what everyone's doing at the moment. Okay, so, so let's so bust that up a little bit. three in the future, Ross. Okay, so let's bust that up a little bit, Roger. And, and uh, let's go, say, for example, that idea of inflation. We know that there is uh, a mindset by central bankers, and you can see this by the Federal Reserve already admitting it would be happy to get its inflation up beyond 2%. Now, the idea of that, as you point out, is that anybody who borrows today, if there is more inflation in the future and you've got borrowings, those um, borrowings are effectively diminished in real terms because of inflation. Correct. If you don't yep. have inflation, of course, those uh, those borrowings are not diminished and therefore it makes it harder for you to be able to make a real return on your assets if you've got borrowings against them. That's the reason why they're now suggesting they'd like a bit of inflation, but they're going to be careful with a bit of inflation because if they get more inflation than what they bargained for, which happened in the period between 1997 and 1991 in Australia, uh, when inflation took off, then they had to push interest rates up to try and stop the inflation from getting out of control. So and then this we had is, the bond market crash in 94. Uh, that's right. So as a result, yep. you end up having 
a worst recession. You and I have talked about this before, that the real recession might come in, say, three or four years' time when, A, yes. the government seeks to withdraw support. It's not the Reserve Bank supporting the economy right now. It is the government. And so when it withdraws support, it's dangerous. Or, indeed, if the Reserve Bank ever has to increase interest rates because of inflation that it doesn't feel it control. They're the danger signs for the economy. They're the danger signs for the stock market. But they're not now. They're not today or tomorrow or any time in the next year or so. It's out into the future that those risks start to become more real. Yeah, in, indeed, Ross. And and let's remember, there's no vaccine at the moment. We haven't. We, when we're recording this, there isn't. There isn't a, a solution yet. I mean, there's countries are trying elimination. Some countries are trying suppression. But but you know, we we're not in a world yet where uh, a recovery um, is uh, is immune to an out, another outbreak of the virus. The the virus is still around. There's still still cases emerging in New South Wales. In fact, New South Wales today has more cases than Victoria. Uh, and in Victoria's in you know stage four lockdown, so uh, we've got we've got a, a long road ahead uh, in the absence of a vaccine. So this budget may not be the cure all, and it certainly might not be the panacea. So that being also the case is that you know the budget is there; it's designed to create a response, which it's doing. Then the question yes. is whether we as taxpayers are getting the best value bang for our buck, as it were. Now, we know mm. with JobKeeper and JobSeeker, that was about trying to keep people engaged with the workforce. Um, yes. That broadly has worked for them. Uh, we know that uh, family savings rates have gone to all-time record highs, so it's not necessarily driving consumption, though it has, and even lockdowns have actually caused some increase in consumption in some areas. We know that retailers, for example, those with electrical goods and so forth, even cars have actually gone really quite well. But in your yes. mindset, with things such as the business investment allowance, um, job yep. creation measures, including the to try and get people under the age of 35 into subsidised jobs, um, and yep. also research and, and development tax incentives, are these good ways for government to spend our taxpayer dollars? Well, you know, in the absence of an alternative, um, it, it's, it's something that... You're not going to see, for example, the, if, if we talk just about the business investment, uh, the accelerated tax breaks. You know, the government pointed out in the budget that it's open to 99% of businesses. But they're, they're the businesses turning over less than $5 billion. So it doesn't include Woolies or BHP or West Farms or Telstra. The banks are excluded from it, Rio, Amcor, CSL. None of those businesses are going to get the accelerated tax breaks. They're the ones that are making all the money. Right. They're, they're the ones that can employ thousands and thousands of people. They're not getting it. Um, and the issue that I've got is that while the headline benefit or the headline contribution to the economy is said to be $27 billion, it's actually only about $3 billion. And that's because um, you, you, if you if you undertake the – if you take advantage of the business allowance before June 30, 2022, it's only replacing the tax depreciation benefits – that you normally get over 10 years. So the net benefit's really only $3 billion, um, not $27 billion. And that might not be enough. That $3 billion, Ross, might not be enough to actually offset Treasury's predicted drop of 9.5% in business investment in 2020-21, and non-mining investments forecast to drop by about 14.5%. The other issue that you've got is that small business that have staff on JobKeeper or employing part-time or multicultural workers, 
they don't have the confidence to spend more on equipment. They're not going to be taking advantage of, they're not going to go out and buy another coffee machine for their staff or they're going to buy you know, more kitchen equipment for their restaurant because they've pivoted from supplying, for example, supplying wholesale customers. All their wholesale customers have cancelled their orders. They've pivoted to home delivery. They need a van. They've bought the van already. Um, but they're not going to spend a whole lot because their revenue's down 50, 60, 70%. There's just no confidence there. They're going to be more likely to spend money when they see that the economy is doing better, not just because there's a tax incentive there. They're not going to take the risk on spending the money. So I worry that the, the impact on the economy is not going to be as strong as what the government hopes from this particular budget element, which is the, the accelerated tax breaks. And if you think about this, there was even a situation whereby, you know, they had these accelerated depreciation rules out there already. Uh, and, and they'd increased those assets up to $150 million, uh, sorry, yes. $150,000 for businesses with turnovers of less than $500 million. So that meant mm. small and medium-sized businesses were already caught up. And I mean, unless they were buying a very big piece of equipment, $150,000 was almost a limit for many small and medium-sized businesses to buy a piece of machinery or equipment anyway. So that's where you start to raise some big questions about whether that you know next tier of companies going from there up to $5 billion in, in revenue per year, whether they really are the ones that can turn the dial in terms of economic activity, in terms of hiring people, in terms of basically trying to uh, to bring forward investments. to, to And there's a final part about this that I get. In a low interest rate environment, the return on equity, the return on assets, the return internal of the rate of return of your business you've still got to have the confidence to buy that piece of equipment, to buy that piece of kit, to get a return from it. And if you don't see that return now, you don't do it regardless of the tax incentive in front of you. And that's where there is really at least some question mark about whether, I don't doubt it's the right policy and the right decision, but as you say, if you don't take it all the way up to the very largest companies in the country, the ones that are likely to spend big on equipment, then I just wonder really whether it's going to have the desired effect that many people might hope. Yeah, it's not unlike unlike, um, the US Federal Reserve buying um, corporate bonds or junk bonds. What that does is that cheapens the debt for those companies, so it makes the debt cheap, but it doesn't bring in revenue, and it's the same thing here. It's a supply element, so you're making equipment cheaper for companies to buy, but you're not bringing them more customers. You're not bringing, you're not bringing them revenue. Um, and so, so the idea is that it can for, for the supplies of that equipment. There'll be more demand for the supplies of that equipment, but it doesn't flow through. The restaurant's not getting more customers coming to buy food from them. And, and that's the issue. If you don't have the economy really firing on all cylinders, small business just doesn't have the confidence to spend. Okay, so then another policy is the job maker wage subsidy. Yes. Now, yeah, this is interesting because they've right. had job keeper and they've had job seeker. Now there's job maker. This is yep. where young people will, or young people, when hired, if they are currently unemployed, where the employer will receive a tax credit up to $200 per week. The yep. real worry that I have got here is that there's a churn of young people inside organisations as they try to effectively, well, let's be honest, try and take advantage of this 
current situation. And there's a lot of big employers out there who have a lot of very young people under the age of 35 out there. And a lot of people are already arguing a case that maybe people over the age of 50 are being significantly discriminated. They might need the part-time work as well, and they might be discriminated against at the expense of much younger workers. Yeah, in, indeed, Ross, that's uh, that's exactly right. Um, you take McDonald's, for example, 80% of their workforce, they've got 105,000 employees under the age of 21. Um, sorry, 80% of that 105,000 uh, are under 21. So so they're going to be big beneficiaries of this. Uh, Woolies will as well, so will Coles and Bunnings. Um, but, but you're right, I think what you're alluding to is there's potentially going to be some gaming of the system here. So so let's just break it down for people. If if a business hires an 18-year-old on the minimum 20 hours a week, um, then that $200 effectively means that the hourly rate that the business is paying falls from $15 an hour to just $5 an hour. So the business is only forking out 5 bucks an hour to employ an 18-year-old for 20 hours a week. Now, the way that can be gamed is that why would, why would the business, for example, hire one 18-year-old or 21-year-old full-time worker when they can employ two part-timers and get the get more incentive, you know, get more money back. Uh, they can hire two part-timers and, in fact, in, effectively double the subsidy to them. So, you know, I think there's going to be – you'll see a lot more young people being employed but for short stints. So, you know, hopefully the more successful young people will get – two or three roles, uh, maybe two roles in two different businesses, um, and uh, and that will be fine. But remember, there's also a catch, Ross. The employee has to have been on JobSeeker or the youth allowance before, and the business has to have increased its headcount from September 30 over three months. So they've got to be hiring new people, and those new people that they hire have to be people on JobSeeker, have to have been on JobSeeker or the youth allowance beforehand. So there are a couple of catches. And I do think there's the opportunity, as you point, as you alluded to, uh, for a bit of gaming of this particular one. All right, let's back up one step now, because obviously the stock market is now, you know, fairly fully priced. Uh, it's had a, a decent run. It has its days where it really starts to doubt what's going on, or it doubts what's happening in the United States. And there's even issues there on a global basis that are going to affect our share prices here. Are there any out there as a result of what you're seeing out of the budget and out of what you're seeing with all these economic levers being pulled and pushed at the moment where there is any value, where there's actually potentially opportunity for growth potentially over the next two to three years before then maybe everybody has to rethink uh, what the uh, what the next strategy is given where the, the budget settings might be then? Yeah, look, I, I, I believe that... Um that what you want to do now or what, what you need to have some of in your portfolio is what we call the reopening insurance stocks. Um, and so they're, they're insurance in your portfolio that if a vaccine is developed or, as was reported in The Australian this week, uh, there was a, a company, uh, an Australian business, which has just taken a huge order from the United States for, a, for an accurate COVID test with results that come back in 15 minutes, um, that will allow travel at airports to normalise or, or head back to normal. And so those sorts of things, either treatments or testing or a vaccine, you, you need to have stocks in your portfolio now, I think, because there is some value in them still that for a reopening. And it's insurance against a reopening. And so companies like corporate travel management, Webjet, 
flight centre, Sydney airports, even some of the, you know, the toll road operators like Transurban, for example, and Atlas Arteria, which owns about 2,300 odd kilometres of, uh, or a stake in 2,300 kilometres of French toll roads. You know, they're the sort of stocks that uh, could really re-rate in the, in the, in the announcement of a vaccine, they could rewrite by 30, 40, 50% in a day or two. So they probably, as you say, are not necessarily where you put all your chips down because no. from that point of view, as you say, that's an insurance in your portfolio um, for Correct. the day when suddenly there is a breakthrough and people suddenly get the idea that you're getting back because that is one other aspect of this budget that I think is a risk and that is the, the prospect of having a vaccine up and going by the middle of next year when you go and yes. look and talk to the vaccine sector and they go, well, that's pretty ambitious because, you know, mm. though we were actually working, you know, around the clock and around the world, uh, there is still nothing necessarily absolutely safeguarded on the immediate horizon that's on the way. So, and that's where I just wonder whether that is one of the punts in this, in this budget and whether we get to winter next year and we're still having to live with the virus and, and, and adapt and cope with the virus. And that is, if you like, as you say, one of the risks that is still inherently inside the budget and probably even inside the stock market right now. Indeed. No, I agree absolutely with that. Another stock that just comes to mind is a, uh, a smaller one called Tyro, which owns the, uh, the merchant terminals when you tap and go at a cafe or a pub or a bar uh, or a, a nightclub. Um, they have about 35,000 terminals distributed in Australia with, sorry, 64,000 terminals distributed in Australia with about 35,000 merchants. And the majority of those merchants is, as I say, uh, pubs and clubs. Uh, and cafes, which of course in lockdown have been really hit hard. But you imagine if a vaccine was developed, then they're going to surge. They take a clip of the ticket every time you tap your card to pay for a round of drinks, uh, and uh, and they'll do very well also. It's going to be interesting. So from this budget, what's your mood like right now, Roger? Are you optimistic? Are you uh, are you sitting on your hands? What's your story right now? I think I I think I'm cautiously optimistic. I think. Uh, I think this is better than a lot of budgets that could have been announced. Um, it's probably not as big as what I thought we were going to get. It's more targeted and more directed. That's probably a good thing. Um, but I actually believe that government's keeping some bullets, uh, keeping its powder dry, uh, because if the economy does fall into another funk, so to speak, uh, or a vaccine is de- delayed for some time or we get an outbreak, uh, then they've got more more bullets that they can fire. And I think that's why you haven't seen as much uh, this time around, so I think it's a sensible budget, and I think it's a you know an indication of of uh, of how well uh, the Liberal Party are, are managing the economy. There you go, Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management. Is always great with his time uh, and with his views uh, here on the podcast. And Roger, as always, it's great to have a chat. Always a pleasure, Ross. So that's it for today's episode. My appreciation to Roger Montgomery, who is so good with his time. You can contact me via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can subscribe to this podcast via Apple's podcast store, Spotify, and over the past week or so, Amazon as well. This is a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. Money Minutes.